This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast and to sign up for podcast updates, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. And for more information about additional programs related to the global coronavirus crisis, visit pli.edu slash coronavirus. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. When the world turns upside down, how do you get right side up again? First, you have to make sense of what is going on, what is changing, and what is possible. And if you are a civic-minded lawyer, you start thinking about how you can help other people make sense of what is going on, what is changing, and what is possible. As soon as it became clear that COVID-19 was going to have a major impact on the United States, Brad Karp, chairman of the law firm Paul Weiss, started thinking about how he could help people get through what was coming. From the firm's headquarters in New York City, Brad emailed 1,000 Paul Weiss lawyers to ask one simple question. Who wants to work on a pro bono project to help people and small businesses affected by COVID-19? Brad and his colleagues, Bob Atkins and Gene McLaughlin, tell us what happened. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. All right, uh, Brad, could you introduce yourself and tell us about your role at Paul Weiss? Sure. I'm Brad Karp. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm the chair of Paul Weiss. I've been chair uh, since the last crisis, which was the financial crisis of 2008, Before that, I was chair of the litigation department, and I'm a Paul Weiss lifer, beginning as a summer associate in 1983. Bob, could you introduce yourself and tell us about your role? I'd be happy to, and thank you for having us today. I'll do it in reverse order. I was a summer associate in the summer of 1986. At some point, I joined the partnership. I was the chair of the pro bono committee for uh, a term or two, and I'm now co-chair of the litigation department. And Jean, could you introduce yourself? Yes, and thank you so much for having me here. I am a partner in our executive compensation and employee benefits practice group. Um, My practice is largely transactional, um, but it's been a wonderful opportunity to get involved in this pro bono effort, um, particularly given the fact that the COVID-19 Relief Center and the efforts are so focused on maintaining U.S. jobs and employment. So... Thinking about where we are today, uh, what made Paul Weiss decide to um, to dig in and get involved in the re- in responding to COVID nineteen from a pro bono perspective? I believe it was March fourteenth when it basically struck us that there were a couple of aspects to the pandemic 
that affect vulnerable individuals. You know, one of them obviously is the medical and the tragic medical consequences associated with the pandemic and the uh, illnesses and the deaths that are accumulating. But then there's there's another aspect, which is the fact that you could tell a month ago that tens of millions of Americans were going to be furloughed, we're going to be fired, we're going to lose their uh, employment. And the overwhelming number of these tens of millions of Americans are the most vulnerable in our society. I mean, most of them earn low wages. Uh, More than half of all United States adults live paycheck to paycheck. They don't have emergency funds to cover a month or two or three of expenses. Most American businesses, as Gene knows, don't extend severance pay to employees. And you know, these low-wage employees tend to work predominantly in industries that would be among the most catastrophically hurt by the pandemic. You know, tens of millions of Americans who work in the leisure and hospitality industries, tens of millions of workers who work in the food services industry, retail clerks. So you're looking at tens and tens of millions of Americans who are going to lose their jobs. And you a month ago, you would hear rumors that the federal government, the state government, uh, local governments, public interest organizations were going to stand up various programs to try to provide emergency financial assistance to these individuals. But that was just getting started. And these individuals who are going to be most deeply affected tend to be the most vulnerable and have the least resources to really navigate the labyrinth of of different programs. So as the programs began rolling out, it occurred to us that we really, as lawyers, can play a very vital role in helping to make these programs, which otherwise would be inaccessible, accessible to these uh, American workers who were desperately in need of assistance. So that's really what prompted uh, our, our goal to try to make something that was impenetrable accessible and help individuals navigate the system. And so when you realize that this is a way that Paul Weiss could be helpful and, and you wanted to get involved, um, what, what happened when you shared your idea for this with others in the firm? It was a Saturday, and I sent an email out at, I think it was 2 o'clock on a Saturday, and I asked uh, my colleagues, I sent it to all attorneys at Paul Weiss, and I asked if anyone would be willing to volunteer to collect and digest and organize and synthesize Um, information that was beginning to flood uh, the system about the different relief programs uh, that would be available to those who were displaced by COVID-19 and work with us to build an infrastructure to make the information accessible and actionable uh, by uh, individuals. Uh, Within two hours, over 400 uh, Paul Weiss attorneys pledged their help. So, um, 40% of the firm within two hours signed up and basically said, I'm here to do whatever you need me to do. Uh, And then I had a lot of very funny stories from partners at the firm. One one partner said he actually sat down with his family, watched a two-hour movie, and then when he looked at his iPhone, it said he had over 400 messages. <laughs> so he basically thought the, he thought the world had ended <laughs> during, during, the, during that period. So I should have given warning to the partners that I was going to send out this volunteer uh, email, but uh, it was very inspiring. It, was, it, was, it actually was one of the most memorable uh, and inspirational days of my entire career at the firm. And so with 40% of the firm saying, I'm in, I want to help, you 
now you have a whole lot of volunteers, but you're doing something brand new. Can you talk to us about how you're thinking about how are you organizing all this work? This is Bob. We have basically three different paths of pro bono work. The first, which I'll discuss first, is the COVID Relief Center. The second is uh, starting new pro bono initiatives with corporate clients and uh, friends in the pro bono community. And third, addressing the COVID effects in the context of other pro bono activities that were already in place. Uh, With respect to the COVID Relief Center and the 400 volunteers, we organized the volunteers uh, along jurisdictional grounds, meaning we had a team for New York State, for New York City, for the federal government relief program, for uh, charitable organizations who were offering relief services, and we had teams for all 50 states. And uh, after less than two weeks of around-the-clock work and thousands of hours, we set up this website, which we call the COVID Relief Center, that has every program we could find in each of those categories. So somewhere north of 800 different programs at local, regional, state, and federal level, and then philanthropic. And we have received well north of 30,000 visits so far uh, to, the, to the center. And we have heard from all 50 states. So it has gathered a lot of attention and hopefully use. Uh, the way in which we did that was once we stood up the website, we announced it and made it available to thousands of clients more than 150 pro bono organizations uh, and partners. Um, And as a result of that, it got passed on and passed on to management and employees at clients, to members and constituents of public interest groups. And that in turn has stimulated an interest um, among lawyers, public interest groups, and in-house law departments to work with us on both the website, but more importantly, on impactful pro bono activities. Uh, So by virtue of having all these folks come to us to do work, we've initiated uh, several uh, specific programs. We are working on the New York City Bar Justice Center hotline to answer questions about relief services. We are doing the training and with fellow members of the bar, we'll be staffing those phones and answering questions. We've established a small business legal clinic uh, with the City Bar Justice Center and Lawyers for Good Government to answer questions from businesses seeking relief. We've uh, set up a training program with volunteers of legal services Uh, to provide unemployment and public benefit assistance. We have worked with the New York Lawyers for the Public Interest in making available uh, webinars on assistance to nonprofits. And we have, lastly, established a counseling program for low-income artists and freelancers working in collaboration with Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts and NBC. Because unlike uh, existing programs, 
some of the new relief programs, including the federal stimulus law, makes benefits available to freelancers and artists who typically are closed out from such programs. The pandemic has impacted existing uh, pro bono activities. And lastly, and also sadly, uh, I'm sure everyone has seen the press coverage of the spike in domestic violence. And we are working with Sanctuary for Families to provide assistance to women seeking orders of protection and needing shelter. As Bob explained, the needs triggered by the COVID-19 pandemic have touched every corner of the pro bono work at Paul Weiss, and the lawyers there are working hard to rise to the occasion. So much of our traditional notion of pro bono involves litigation. But this pandemic and the social distancing requirements have created whole new areas of pro bono opportunity across the entire team at Paul Weiss, where expertise and dedication come in many different specialties that are suddenly essential to making an impact. Jean, you described most of your work as being transactional. So I'm curious, could you talk about the way that these various projects are drawing in your practice group and other um, transactional lawyers at Paul Weiss to, again, giving them an opportunity to contribute? Sure, I would be happy to. Um, You know, I think as Brad indicated, there was just such a broad interest in participating in this program. I think at a time where so many things have been taken out of um, the control of individuals. You know, this was a way in which we both could contribute and people feel like they are bringing what we can bring, you know, into control. So we've had associates, council partners from all of our practice areas at a time that, you know, we are all physically separated right now, um, you know, really sort of being in the trenches in this effort and working so closely together um, has been a wonderful way to get to know people and really sort of get to know the fabric of the firm. I think um, in terms of, you know, the skills that you have to have to be valuable here, um, you know, this is not something that's limited to the skill set that a litigator develops. I think being organized, being diligent, um, energetic, and a hard worker who's willing, because these programs are being developed rapidly, and the need to get the word out um, in a plain English way that the reader can understand it and how to access those programs. Now, those are skills that all of our lawyers develop, regardless of your practice area. So everybody's dispersed to their homes and working remotely, uh, and um, and that includes um, your um, staff and members of the Paul Weiss family who are not lawyers. How have they been able to um, contribute to these pro bono efforts? You know, I think in addition to the volunteer lawyers that we have had, um, you know, from my perspective, I think there's been really three key departments that we could not have done this without. Um, you know, and, you know, one is our really very well-organized um, pro bono group. Um, the second is our business development group. And third, at a very practical level, you know, the very, um, the IT function that we have, um, because there's a, you know, big IT um, function that has to support our website. So we've been working closely with Emily Goldberg, the firm's pro bono counsel, and her team who has helped arrange the client and non-for-profit partnerships. Our business development department staff um, work closely with us and the leaders of this initiative and the various teams of lawyers to have built out our website platform, which they did in less than a week. There are over 800 programs um, that are described here. So we could not have done that without the 
um, expansion of our website capabilities that our business development group um, really organized. Um, our team now is working on developing a phase two version of the platform that will enhance search capability and will allow visitors um, even more easily to locate the most relevant information as they are you know, trying to look at their own needs. That kind of response takes a whole firm pro bono commitment, a little over a week to launch a brand new site, a site that compiles the relief available to individuals and small businesses in every single U.S. state and many U.S. cities. Seriously, if you want information about COVID-19 relief specific to Pasadena, California, Austin, Texas, or Denver, Colorado, you can find it in Paul Weiss's COVID Relief Center. And the new phase of the website with enhanced search capability launches April 28th. To see the page for yourself, go to paulweiss.com and click on the COVID Relief Center. Of course, Paul Weiss is mounting this massive pro bono response in the midst of very unusual times. Typically, lawyers use technology as one of many tools to communicate and collaborate. But in this moment, technology is the only way to break the isolation and get things done. How is the firm managing the realities of the of the fact that we all have to be remote lawyers now as people are picking up what may be brand new or relatively new areas for them doing the pro bono work? We have, in very short order, mastered uh, the ability to work and function remotely, both with respect to our uh, paid legal work and our pro bono work. Uh, so we have been able to do all of these activities, including standing up the Relief Center, reaching out to clients and pro bono partners, and getting activities set up entirely by phone and sometimes uh, FaceTime and, and, and Zoom. And since many of these activities we've discussed are web-based and phone-based, like the City Justice Center hotline, it's been rather smooth and in some senses more efficient because we don't spend time walking around the office and going to meetings. So <laughs> it's, it's, actually, it, it, it's actually been extraordinarily effective. And if I could just add to that, you know, I think a lot of our lawyers uh, find that being able to make a contribution in this time of unprecedented crisis is very therapeutic because you know most individuals are trapped in their apartments they're trapped in their homes they're inundated with all of this negative information and we have a certain skill set and we want to be able to deploy our skill set to be able to help those who are desperately in need and unfortunately the number of individuals who are desperately in need is just so voluminous at this stage. So you have a bunch of public-minded lawyers, because that's who Paul Weiss tends to attract, um, sitting alone or sitting in a, a very small group wanting to do something to make some contribution, to make a positive difference. And then this initiative uh, arises, so everyone jumps all over it, and they are digging into it with just so much gusto and so much energy. And I think Bob was alluding to the fact that our pro bono hours uh, last month in March were uh, by an order of magnitude greater than our pro bono hours in any month in our firm's history. 
So people have really jumped in with both feet, and this is continuing, you know, halfway through April. And frankly, we expect that this is going to continue throughout the duration uh, of this crisis. Is there a way in which coming in together on this intensive pro bono project, does it bring people any sense of feeling like they are coming together in a way, even if they can't actually be together in the halls? Yeah, I think having a common project, a common goal, it does definitely create a sense of community. Being able to work as part of a very large group on a project that has so much importance attached to it, uh, we all think is, is very therapeutic and really does help to uh, fight against the sense of isolation that everyone feels. Are there any challenges that you faced in getting this going and keeping it going? Uh, you got 400 people in two hours saying, I'm in, um, but uh, has there been a struggle for people to maintain um, their engagement? This is Bob. I would say one thing that has surprised me was after we got the relief center in operation, uh, we made a commitment to ourselves, but also to those who were using it, that we would monitor and update it in real time as programs are added, as programs are modified and clarified. And we, this army of lawyers who we've described to you have not let up. They have not taken their foot off the gas. Uh, I was concerned about that. But on a daily basis, there are folks who are assigned to keep their eye on their particular uh, area, like Gene in California, and it just keeps coming, and people keep doing it. So that's, that's been pleasing. To me, the largest struggle, which is related to what I just said, is that it is a constantly moving, gyrating target as new programs come online, as experience teaches that certain programs aren't working and need to be modified. And as I'm sure you've seen, the federal relief, both for individuals and uh, struggling employees, as well as businesses, is the subject of daily government pronouncements, regulations, rulemaking. So we have to be on top of this every minute of every day. That's a challenge, but it's a challenge that we're meeting. And what kind of barriers are you seeing for the people who are trying to access programs? Like things that are unexpected barriers or entirely predictable, but now we're trying to, um, you know, get through them? Well, I, I can give one prime example that impacts every constituent from businesses to small businesses to artists and to nonprofits. And that's the loan program. Uh, from the Small Business Administration. There's been an enormous amount of follow-up, lobbying, rulemaking, um, and there's been a lot of confusion around that. So we're providing immediate real-time advice as that program morphs over time. Uh, and I think we're going to continue to see that because the demand is so high, the stress on the small, uh, small Business Administration, which, uh, no pun intended, is small and has never had to carry this kind of burden, and then the commercial banks that need to process and dispense the loans is going to be an enormous undertaking. Uh, and it's something that w w we've, we've uh, allocated lots of resources, people, and time to making sure 
that folks that we know can get access to that lending uh, in the best way possible. I would echo, I think the biggest challenges are the operational challenges. You know, there's so many programs that have been set up, but um, the needs and the demands are so high. As, you know, as Brad had laid out in the three weeks ended April 4th, um, there were close to 17 million first-time unemployment claims brought. Um, that was took 18 months in the 2008-2009 financial crisis to reach those same numbers. So, you know, just individuals trying to access, you know, the unemployment insurance the unemployment benefits, you know, which have been enhanced after the CARES Act, you know, there's been sort of drags on that. I think the challenging thing and I think the sobering thing is, you know, when you were going to predict what the impact of the government shutdowns was going to be on businesses, you sort of knew that, you know, this would have an impact on jobs, but the volume is just really quite devastating. You know, in terms of our associates, I've had many associates that are involved in this project saying that this has taken on sort of a personal component because their siblings or family members have lost jobs. Uh, I, I know that I sent the website to my best friend's son who lost his waiting tables job. You know, he's a year out of college and... I said, wait, I have a resource. <laughs> and, and so I did unemployment compensation cases in Chicago for 15 years. And these are not, in normal times, fast-moving bureaucracies. Um, and I, I can't even imagine what the, the folks who work for the government um, agencies, local, state, and federal, are going through because they don't have a whole lot of redundancy built in in normal times. Uh, and now they're being overwhelmed uh, with people uh, needing to access help. Based on some reports that we've received, you know, things are starting to normalize a bit. You know, unclear whether that's because they've sort of added, you know, coverage um, or that the process is getting more streamlined. But certainly in the you know, in the past few weeks, it's really been a struggle, but um, we've had some indication that the process is becoming a little bit more efficient. So many challenges, so many people and institutions working hard to find equilibrium. As Brad, Bob, and Jean point out, preserving and strengthening a sense of community is part of finding equilibrium. And pro bono contributions literally contributions for the public good, are a vital part of strengthening community. But how do lawyers get hooked into pro bono that actually helps during this crisis, at a time when even buying groceries has become a complicated, socially fraught event? How do lawyers find the right way to make a useful contribution? We got Brad, Bob, and Jean to share their thoughts. If there are other folks out there, firms, um, lawyers who want to figure out how they can participate and get involved, on the one hand, I can imagine this would be a little intimidating because your response has been so broad and so fast and so um, phenomenal. Um, but how would someone, another firm or a mid-sized firm attorney or a sole practitioner, how would you recommend that they get involved? Well, we've been coordinating uh, with a number of different law firms, I mean, scores of different law firms, to try to help us expand our program across the United States and across the world. You know, the, the needs associated with this pandemic are so overwhelmingly large and daunting that we really do need an army of lawyers and an army, a squadron of law firms to uh, 
really make a dent in this effort. So we welcome the, the only issue that we have to grapple with is if you do this in an uncoordinated fashion, you wind up uh, making it more complicated uh, than it would otherwise be. Sometimes more is just more. Uh, more isn't always better. So we're trying to coordinate and we're eager to take on additional volunteers. Um, as Gene and Bob have made very clear, we have quite an apparatus that we've constructed uh, and we, we could certainly use additional resources in helping to roll it out because uh, it is dynamic and as Bob said, it is gyrating. We have received calls and emails from lawyers all over the country and from places and law firms we've never heard of and have never had a relationship. So for example, yesterday I spoke with a lawyer from Portland, Oregon, um, who wanted to know how he could either work with us or how he could do, uh, maybe on a slightly smaller scale, what we've done. And I had a terrific conversation with him where we brainstormed about things he could do and, you know, he was very grateful and it was very satisfying. And I've had similar calls with lawyers from Oklahoma and Illinois and California, not surprisingly. Um, and the other thing I would say that we really haven't pointed out is we received many calls from companies and their in-house law departments wanting to make an effort. And we have... We have a whole separate initiative to partner with client law departments to put their in-house lawyers uh, to work. And a number of these programs I've described, like the City Justice Center Hotline, like the Unemployment Benefits uh, Counseling, we are bringing into those activities lawyers from lots of different and you know brand name corporations that want to have an impact. If somebody hears this and wants to connect with with Paul Weiss, how do you want them to go about doing it? What's the best way to try to connect with you all to talk about what might be possible? They can send an email or make a phone call to any of the three of us. In fact, just to, just to amplify that, to the extent that this podcast can serve as a megaphone of sorts to get the word out, that would be a very salutary aspect of this entire discussion. We, we want people, we want this program to be promoted. We want people to get involved. The more people who get involved in a coordinated fashion, the better it will be for everyone. So there's such a sense of community um, in crisis that you can feel is building up around this work, both in your firm and among lawyers across the country. What do you think that we can do to make this sense of community last? What, what do you think the long-term benefits of this will be? It's Brad. I'm hoping that, you know, initiatives like this, which draw communities together, and cross firm boundaries and cross state boundaries and cross you know federal state and local boundaries uh, will 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 remain that people will work together more collaboratively and more collegially and have greater perspective i mean members of our paul Weiss family have lost uh, moms and dads and and brothers and others in the course of this crisis. And that is true across any modestly sized community. We know people who have been lost and it gives you a sense of real perspective and a greater appreciation of the fragility of life. So I, I think going forward, hopefully 
will be a little kinder, a little more patient, a little more collaborative, a little more collegial, and will have much more perspective than some of us have had in, in months and years past. That's my wish. You know, I've been incredibly impressed at how, as you know, different members of the teams that I've been leading have had reasons that they've had to sort of pull back. Um, everybody's had each other's backs. Um, so I would say that, you know, if if the model that has been effective in getting this done can sort of translate to other aspects of our society, we'd all be in a pretty good place. And, and I, I think, too, it's been nice to be in a space where everyone's allowed to have some grace, right? It's amazing that no one's kid has run in um, in the middle of this interview to need something. You know, I certainly know my house has become an odd place where I've got somebody literally litigating from the kitchen. So my husband is a trial attorney and he's going to court on Zoom um, and I'm doing a podcast in the in the closet. And uh, <laughs> you know, a middle schooler trying to figure it all out. What are, what are some of the um, funny and unexpected things that have happened for you as you've tried to live out this shelter in place? It's Brad. Um, my my daughter just had a uh, a baby, so I became a grandparent, and it's pretty it's pretty surreal when you think about uh, how horrific and catastrophic the world uh, has become, and then to invite a new person into this world, uh, and you see the vulnerability and the innocence of that individual. I mean, the the baby is just a couple of days old, and you look at the baby and you think, you know. If only you knew the circumstances surrounding your your arrival into our world. My God, you'll people will be talking about this for the rest of your life. And then I guess one, one anecdote that I I always share because this person is a treasure in Paul Weiss. Um, we have a retired partner whose name is uh, Mordecai Rocklin. Mordecai Rocklin was born uh, in December of 1912. He's 107 and a half years old. And when this first, when this first happened, I, I would check in on Morty every several days. And the first time I checked in on him, I, he must have sensed a little bit of panic in my voice. And he said, Brad, Brad, don't worry. I had the Spanish influenza in 1918, and I've lived another 102 years just fine. Who knows? Maybe I have antibodies. <laughs> So, you know, that that gave me some that gave me some perspective and Morty is doing just fine. <laughs> um, Bob, Jean, do you have any good stories to share about living out this shelter in place? Well, I can't top those stories, but uh, there, I'll, I'll just share a sort of paradoxical phenomena. And this goes back to your question about working remotely. You know, the truth is we do an awful lot of work remotely already. Um we do a lot of client business, particularly clients out of town and clients overseas by phone. The, the client meeting is somewhere uh, nearing extinction. And so the, the advent of online video services has actually, in some instances, brought people closer. You're actually connecting in a way that uh, is more personal, is more direct than before, because you can see them and people aren't dressed up in their business uniforms. And so I think it's added a, 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 a degree of humanity that, to the points that Gene and Brad just make, I hope carries, carries on. 
you know, we all sort of try to cover e for each other as, you know, one of our colleagues, you know, with a small child when she has no help on the, and she's got to mute her phone, you know, one of us picks up and makes sure that, you know, things are as smooth as they can be in light of the challenges of working with small kids. Mm -hmm. There is something about all of this that can be a bit of a personality test. So my uh, my husband had court and a legion of stories about people with the uh, with the suit and tie on top um, and uh, sweats on the bottom. But uh, my husband full on full suit even put on the wingtip shoes. And I said, you don't you really don't have to put on the shoes. He said, I just I don't know how to go to court if I'm not dressed correctly, even if it's just the kitchen. So. <laughs> We're all managing it in our own ways. Oh, thank you so much to the three of you with all of the things that you're doing for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for letting us get the word out. I think there's probably people in our communities that, you know, I think of the manicurist, the diner owner that I get oatmeal from, right, that you've just lost touch with. So to the extent that we can do anything to make this you know, available to people that we see every day, but we don't otherwise know how to get in touch with. Right. And I think this is a, there's a real issue in this crisis of helping folks who are not, because of the stability they've experienced in the past, they're not used to trying to access government programs or relief. And there's so many new things available, but it's also a new crowd of people trying to access them. Uh, and so the work that you're doing to support those folks to get the things to which they're entitled and which they desperately need and which all of us need so that we have small businesses to visit when this is over is just incredibly um, valuable. And thank you so very much for all the good work you're doing. Thank you. Be safe. Thank you so much. We are so grateful to Brad Karp, Bob Atkins, and Jean McLaughlin of the law firm Paul Weiss for taking the time to share their stories of responding to and getting through the COVID-19 pandemic. We hope everyone listening is finding ways to be well and contribute to strengthening your own communities as well. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu slash pro bono.